if I was living in an environment where we had fully detailed, fully buildable, fully coordinated designs coming out of our design consultants and everything else, then yeah, I'd spend my time looking at the metaverse because that'd be really cool. But the reality of it is that we can't get the basics done right. So in the absence of doing the basics right, everybody goes off looking for the next big, bright, shiny light, which currently is the metaverse. And in, in two years' time, it'll be something else. And in two years' time, it'll be something else. Welcome back to Building Leaders, everyone. Today we have with us Ronan Collins, who is the digital delivery officer at the Red Sea Development Company. Ronan, I want to make sure I got your title right, first of all. And second, I want you to tell us how many LinkedIn messages you get per month from construction technology companies trying to pitch you their products. <laughs> so first of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. It's, uh, it's really nice to meet you guys. And I'm, I'm really glad I got invited along. I'm a big fan of people doing podcasts and sharing knowledge in our space. So keep keep up the good work. It's good to see you guys getting in the space. First correction, it's the digital delivery director for the Red Sea Development Company. I'm not sure an officer is an official title in, in, in Saudi Arabia, but my I've got a directorship, which is nice. I've been in uh, Red Sea Development Company about 18 months. And before that, I was in Malaysia. I was the uh, head of project information management for Malaysia's biggest civil engineering contractor, a company called Gamuda. And we were working on things like the Metro. In terms of my LinkedIn inbox, it is absolutely overwhelmed. <laughs> There's a, a, a large number of people who haven't had a response to me in the last couple of months. We've been d doing a, a huge amount of recruitment. We're, we're, we're looking for people to come and work with us here in, the, in, in Saudi Arabia on, on our projects. So... Um, I've been doing podcasts, I've been doing presentations, I was in London a couple of weeks ago, and, and it's all on LinkedIn. So people who follow me, some people think it's hilarious I spend so much time on LinkedIn, but it's actually for a, a deliberate purpose. It, it attracts talent and it brings in some, some really great people. Uh, and yes, we do get a lot of technology companies pitching ideas, pitching services, pitching business. And sometimes I entertain them, sometimes I'm going, mm, not so much interest. <laughs> But it's uh, it's constant. So if I spent if if I didn't have a real job, I'd probably end up spending my whole time on LinkedIn answering messages and talking to people. But I, I have to I have to find some way of balancing it. Ronan, you founded a company in Hong Kong. So it was pretty interesting how I got to meet Ronan. I was basically traveling to Demam and uh, went to meet with uh, one of our contacts at Aramco and was invited and ended up being a speaker on the same panel as Ronan. And this happened yeah. over the course, randomly over the course of uh, a week or something. Uh, but we had a great chat there and you shared how you had your own company in Hong Kong. Do you want to tell us through, and you started actually in BIM way back. I don't know. And did, I don't give people, away my age now. Come on, you you young guys are going to get me in trouble. Did people even... So no, I, so, okay, so I'll give you the timeline. So then it, it kind of, for those people who don't know me, it'll clear up a bit of a, a, bit of a curiosity. So... Yeah. So I graduated in 1996 yeah. with a degree in civil engineering from University College Dublin. Uh, and Michaelis, we were just talking before we, this, we got on air, you were, you were in, in, in Dublin at one point. So, yeah. so I probably left Ireland long before you even got there. So I graduated in 96 and I started work for uh, Arabs, the big international engineering firm. So Arab had a team in, in Dublin and Ireland. So I worked with those guys for the best part of four years. Um, and then I transferred with Arab uh, to Hong Kong so I had a, a job with Arabs in Hong Kong, and I worked on some of the tallest buildings in the world at the time. So it was the IFC2, the Kowloon Station, and a number of other projects in Hong Kong. So in the plan was to spend a few years in Hong Kong, 
and then go to Australia for a couple of years, and then after that, go back to Ireland. So the plan was to get back to Ireland before I was 30. That was the original plan. Yeah. So arrived in arrived in Hong Kong in 2000. Absolutely loved working in Hong Kong. It's a, it's an incredible environment. To, the, the projects they work on, the, the stuff that we get involved with is incredible. But in 2003, I was getting a bit kind of itchy to set my own thing up and try my own thing and run my own business. So in 2003, I created a, a, a company. It was originally called Consult 3D, and then it got eventually got renamed as IntelliBuild. Um, and basically, that company ran from 2003 till about 2015, 2016. And we were one of Hong Kong's kind of BIM consultants, if you will, BIM, BIM providers in, in Hong Kong. So we started off making models of temporary works for major bridge construction. We did models of airport construction. We built railway models. And we basically started building 3D models from 2D drawings way back in 2003, 2004, 2005. And, and then it became known as BIM, but originally it was just basically 3D modeling. Um, but it's always been the same intention, use, use models to try and identify and solve constructability problems, engineering problems, work out construction sequences. Um, and when you're building some complicated buildings in an environment like the city of Hong Kong, that's, it's a well sought after skill set. So we, we were quite successful in Hong Kong. And then we expanded, we did projects in Macau, and then we did projects eventually all around the world. Ronan, was it in demand, or did you have to create the demand? A bit of both. So there was an opportunity that was, that it's still, the opportunity still exists to, to actually do better coordination and better detailing and better design. But it started off originally working with some of the contractors. They were, they were struggling to come up with some solutions and, some, and, and solve some complicated problems. And, and we would start off... The first couple of projects, we were basically using the models to explain a construction sequence. So the opportunity was basically getting contractors to use our services to win work. But then when the contractors would win the contract, they'd start doing the construction work and we'd get forgotten about. But then some of them started to realize, well, hang on a second, that, that, that model that we built for the tender, that could be useful for safety briefings. It could be useful for other things. Um, and around the same time, people started talking about BIM and doing modeling for construction and everything else. So by the time... BIM became a thing in 2007, 2008. We were already established as one of the kind of the better companies in Hong Kong doing engineering construction modeling. Um, and we do, just basically started hiring more and more people to build more and more models. Do, do, do contractors care about getting the job done right, in your opinion? Hell yeah. So they want to get the job done as quickly and as efficiently as possible because the sooner they can get the job done, the sooner they can get out of it. Most contractors start losing money once jobs start overrunning because they don't they don't they don't always have the opportunity to allow for all their overheads on a continual basis. So every good contractor, every every decent contractor I've ever worked with, they want to build it once, they want to build it quickly, they want to build it safely, and they want to get out of it as quick as they can. So any solution that can identify and solve problems ahead of time is a valuable investment for them because it's it, it, if they avoid prolongation, if they avoid abortive works, if they avoid waste, it's all benefit to them. And and the biggest winners in the digital environment are the contractors, even to this day. So people say, well, the owner stands to gain the most from digital in, digital solutions, which is true. But the, the single biggest winners are the, are the general management contractors because they stand to make the ga biggest gains in the shortest amount of time. What, what do you see one of the most promising technologies or startups right now in the space? Do you see any particular technologies having a huge impact right now? Uh, any particular startups that you like? Don't. So the, one, the ones that are intriguing to me are the ones that link the digital environment to the real environment. So, so anybody who crosses over between digital space and the real space is, 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 is playing a key part. So the, the technology that's really... 
so yeah, so so basically things like drone drone imagery capturing and even beyond drones, like smartphones, going around taking photographs of smartphones, you can you can create some pretty clever three sixty imagery from some some simple smartphones. Um, and there's a number of products out there at the moment that are really interesting to us in terms of how you can actually monitor a construction project using images, whether they're 360 captured images, phone captured images, or drone captured images. All those things can be can be put together and actually create a, a photographic record of the progress on the project. But they're now building AI, or they call it AI, it's pretty straightforward algorithms if you ask me. There's not, there's not too much AI going on, but they can build digital models that can be compared against the, the design model. So if you've got a decent structural steel model or a decent mechanical model that's been coordinated and is used for the shop drawings and the production, you can then overlay the photographs from the site and start building up 3D meshes from the photographs and start comparing what's installed as against what was what was planned to be installed. And that's, that's really clever technology because I was doing that with laser scanning seven, eight, ten years ago. Um, and laser scanning is fantastic, but it's a huge amount of data and it, it's very heavy and it's very cumbersome to use. So being able to very quickly use images to check if something's been installed in the right place, it's it's a it's a game changer. And so that, that's the kind of technology that I've been keeping a close eye on over the last couple of years. It's one of the one of the smartest technologies out there. Yeah. But to be honest, the conversation over the last three to five years has dramatically changed. So the, the the just the up the understanding of how technology is infusing into construction projects, the speed that's being picked up on by contractors, the ease of access to it. There's just more and more people talking about getting more and more technology into the space, and as a result, you see the the ones that I find interesting are the 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 kind of the brick and mortar investment funds. So you've got a couple of people who are running these really sophisticated kind of startup enterprise companies, and they've got an entire ecosystem going now of, of finding lots and lots and lots of startups. And there's lots and lots of cash out there that, that's getting poured into the space. So there's, it's not just that there's one or two companies that's exciting to watch. It's the entire space is exciting to watch because anybody with a bright idea can attract money and energy and, and, and can get going. It's, it's quite cool to watch. If you were to start a construction tech company today to create any product that you can imagine, what would you, what would you do? That's a really tricky one, actually. <laughs> So I, so I still think the biggest construct the biggest issue we have in our industry is still around uh, communication and it's also around trust and commun- and and building trust across the supply chain. We still operate in an environment where people are hard bidding for work, people are competing competing for work. So, so so if you could build a platform or an ecosystem that helped build trust between the the supply chain, so the main contractors, the supply contractors, the material suppliers where people could start to trust the system and, and and build that level of trust into it. I think that'd be really interesting. Uh, we, we all we all eventually fall foul of low bids, low cost, high risk. So but but it's a really tricky space because there's a, there's a lot of people making lots of money in lots of gray areas. So everybody who's tried to build that kind of trust based system and, and deliberately not using the term blockchain or anything like that, because that's where people start. Oh, yeah, it's all cryptocurrency nonsense. But if you could build some kind of platform where you could add, actually build in trust yeah. and, and have an open book approach, I think there's a market for it. I don't think it's for everybody, but I think there's a market for it if, if it was a reliably built system. And um, there's enough people in the industry that are fed up with all the games that get played around low bidding and making claims and making variations and and marking things up and all the stuff that goes on in that space. So I think that'd be an interesting space to get into is is, is that kind of trust platform. But 
I'm not about to start doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 50. I've got a young kid. I've got to get through school. So I'm quite happy taking, doing my job and getting paid a salary. So anybody who's listening to this podcast, don't get anything. I don't get any ideas. I'm about to start another company. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's just interesting to hear um, from, from people that are, you know, day in and day out users of these technologies, of these tools. Um, and especially someone like you, because you've been on sort of all sides of the, of the table, right? You've, you've, uh, You've worked for one of the big consultancies. You had your own company. Now you're working on the owner side. What's the biggest challenge in convincing an owner to utilize a new piece of technology? And how is that different from contractors, in your opinion, from from convincing contractors to use it? So I think, well, there's a couple of things in there. So first of all, you have to take the mantra that you have to figure out what the problem is that you're trying to fix in the first place. So, So most people who deploy technology successfully have identified that they've got an issue they're trying to fix. And they've identified a business model or a business case for it. So if you have a, a, let's say you have a repeating cycle on a construction project where you're always having to core concrete because there's always an issue around coordination and you decide there's got to be a better way to manage the builder's work drawings, the coordination drawings, the the, the MEP coordination. And then you they'll latch on to something like, well, we build models and we'll use the models to produce shop drawings and, and that'll help the process. So... So the contractors figured that out pretty quickly because they, they knew they had a problem and they were wasting money and, and, and those kind of issues on, on, for example, coring. Now you've got owners, so the Red Sea being a good example, who are building large portfolio developments that have experience of building, operating and running facilities. And they're going, well, hang on a second. We know we're going to have a lot of issues around maintenance, refurbishment, replacement. There's got to be a better way to manage that building, manage that asset. So the, so the owners who have got experience, and typically what you see is you see the infrastructure owners, like the railway operators, the highway operators, the big hospitals, the big universities, they're the ones who've been driving it the most if you look at the, the, the overall sector. Individual private developers don't typically get bimmed the first time around because they don't fully understand the idea of using information to manage an asset. But the big operators who've got multiple assets, multiple portfolios, they understand the benefit of having data to manage those facilities. And whether that's space-related information about who's occupying what space, what rents they're paying, what their leases are, whether it's facilities management operational data, which lighting system have we got, which which power system have we got, which 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 communication system have we got, all those kind of things. So there are owners who understand the business case for better information management, and there are contractors who understand the business case for better coordination, better engineering, and and it depends what the use case is. So I like it's kind of an interesting approach because what I'm hearing is either understand it and they're going to go for it. It's the, the market's at that stage or they just don't get it and they will be inevitably late adopters of these technologies because there's no, you know, there's no way forward. Am I getting you right there? Or? Yeah, so, so that's, and that's, that's, the big, that's the interesting thing. That, so, so we joke about how many years I've been around this game. So, yeah. so I did a, a lecture recently for the, actually for the Hong Kong University mm. um, and, and Professor Rowlandson, who set the thing up, asked me to go back and, and look at a timeline of what's changed over the last 15, 20, and in my case, 25 years. And what's interesting is that I went back and looked at stuff that I did when I was in, in Arabs, both in Dublin and in Hong Kong when I got there first. And we were doing some really clever stuff around complicated geometry. And so we were doing, a, like, a, I remember looking at a roof in Singapore for a metro station. And, and that was really complicated stuff. And you fast forward now to 2022, and we're doing the same kind of stuff using the same kind of processes on another project here in Saudi Arabia. So at some point, you go, well, these are all leading edge co- companies and they're all forward thinking. But then if you take a step back and look at the industry as a whole, we've still got major contractors who 
are still getting into CAD. They have never even come across Revit or modeling or a common data environment or anything else. So, so, the, so, the, so the piece that I put into my presentation and the thesis I put to the, the students in the university was, the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed. So you will always find certain owners, certain contractors, certain engineering firms who have gotten the best and the brightest of people, tools, processes, and certain projects that are basically lighthouse projects for what's going on in the industry. But this, the majority of our industry is still a laggard. The majority of players in an industry are still playing catch-up. And it, it may well be like that for the next 10, 15, 20 years. But, but there's more and more people using Zoom calls. There's more and more people doing Teams calls. But, but at the end of the day, the level of adoption of technology in our industry is not consistent and it's not standard across the industry. It, it all depends on the team of people you're with, the businesses you're working for, the projects you get an opportunity to work on. And, and I've been super lucky and super privileged. I've always had a chance to work on some of the most exciting projects, and it's, yeah. but it's not, the same, it's not the same truth for everybody. Ronan, you mentioned earlier the reality capture tools and their importance in, in uh, you know, creating this trust-based process in construction. Mm. What's the kind of internal filter or external filter you go through in understanding what actually works, what's going to be here in 10 years' time, how do you, you know, go through this qualification process personally? Let's say you can't, you can't, you can't look that far into the future. So, you, so, so, so essentially, what you need to do is you need to figure out what is it that I'm trying to deal with now, and what data and what technology can I use to capture that data. So, so if you take, for example, we were doing the drone capturing on the projects back in Malaysia, which was only four or five years ago, we, we were effectively capturing a JPEG image. We were using a, a software tool process called photogrammetry, and we would capture hundreds of those images, and then we would create basically a three D surface from that from that data. So we would end up with an uh, an auto mosaic image, which is now stored in a GIS platform, and and a three D surface. and And those those data formats are still going to be common and still available to use uh, in in the years to come. So ultimately, we were storing data in format that. We could open ten years ago. We'll probably be able to open in another ten years. So, so where we're using specific data formats. So, if you are, for example, using Revit, everybody's familiar with Revit. There's a number of issues around Revit in terms of model versions, model ver model versioning, model control. So, typically, when we go to our supply chain, we ask for non-specific uh, non model formats. Like, so, for example, IFC four. So, so we want to get the Revit models because that's what we can use today. But we also want to have the data in a format that we know we can open in the future. So there's, it's very, very difficult to future-proof technology. But you can do certain things to make it a bit more straightforward. But it's it's one of those things you have to manage. It's, there's, there's nobody can sit and sit in a meeting today and say what's going to be going on in five years' time, let alone 10 years' time. Mm -hmm. But but generally speaking, AutoCAD hasn't gone away in 25 years. Revit's been around 15 years Navisworks is a tool that's been around for 20 years. These are tools that they keep evolving in sometimes in big leaps, sometimes in small leaps, but they're still here, they're still available, they're still, people are still using them. And I know for a fact, if you open a microstation drawing from the 1990s in the current Bentley software, it'll still open and you'll be able to see all the lines and you'll be able to use it. So there, there are formats available that you can keep using, but we don't try and, we don't try and future-proof it. We try and find a use case today to get us the information we need today. Ronan, can you take us through a little bit? What does your day-to-day -day job look like? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis at the Red Sea Development? Other than LinkedIn. Other. That's <laughs> what so I'm not on LinkedIn. <laughs> so so we have, a t we, have, we have two teams here at the Red Sea looking after the project. So we have a design-orientated team and we have a construction-orientated team. 
um, in the inside the digital delivery team. So, so my typical day today is making sure that the team are up and up and running and, and involved in the projects they need to be involved with. I've got a watching brief over a number of current design projects. Um, and, and our biggest challenge is we've got multiple design consultancies across the world working on our projects. So we've got some of the biggest architects in the world, some of the biggest engineering firms in the world, um, and making sure that the systems are up and running, that those guys have been trained to access our systems, making sure that they're participating. And, and ultimately, my, my personal drive is to make sure people are using the models to do the design, do the design coordination, do the design reviews, and make sure people are making as much use of the tools as possible. So like everybody else, I get sucked into lots and lots of meetings. I get invited to a podcast every couple of weeks. I do LinkedIn to, to recruit people. We don't have enough staff. I, I was doing a, before I got in this call, I did a workshop with the guys doing a construction sequence review of one of our projects where I'd actually sat down and used the tools myself for the first time in a, a long time to build a construction sequence. So it's, there's, there's a variety of work that gets done, but essentially I'm managing and, and leading the team that we have and making sure that they're supporting our design teams to get things coordinated, get things out to the site so we can build them. What's your trick in staying organized with all of these? Cause you, you also go to events, you also give speeches at events. You just gave a speech at the Digital Construction Week. You were at the Aramco event yeah. with us. What's your... Yeah. Another panel which, next week. Which panel? Plug it. <laughs> it's the. Uh, it's actually the Project Management Institute again. So they're having a forum here in uh, Riyadh next uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. So, or sorry, Monday, Tuesday. So they, again, graciously invited me to come and join them for a panel to talk about technology and project management. So I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. That that's going to be so cool. What's your trick in in staying organized with all the like a master scheduler? What are what's the? How does your Who's, brain who work? Who said I was organized? <laughs> <laughs> How do you get stuff done? <laughs> do you have like a, a primavera for, for your own schedule? No, so this is what's funny, right? So so some people like to have long lists of things they like to do. And like some people like to have these kind of like dashboards where they've got things with dates on them and, and everything else. I basically, I, I, I keep it all of the, I don't know, it's all in my, it's not, it's, it's like it's all in my head. I've got a list of things that are my priority. Um, and I'll basically at the beginning of every week figure out what I've got to get done in the, in the coming week. What are the key issues? And then I'll know what kind of key things are coming up in the next two, three, four, five weeks. And I'll, I'll make sure that I get a couple of those things sorted out. I keep a few notes that jar my memory. But essentially, I'll, if it's something important enough, I'll put it in my calendar. But essentially, it's just done on the fly. And it, it's at my level, it's, it's very much a reactionary. So, so I can come into work in the morning. I'll say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I walk in the door and someone lands a grenade on my desk and it's like, okay, I've got to go deal with that. And, and then I might get X done before the end of the day. And then I might find myself dealing with Y and Z either that evening or first thing the following day. So I, I don't have a, a primavera schedule. I don't have a master list. I just, I deal with the hot potatoes as they come over my desk. And and, and then there's things I have to prioritize. And I do that use, if I say, if I need to, I'll put it in a calendar. But essentially, there's a lot of things juggling. And I, it's always been that way. If anybody, it's whoever's known me over the last 20 years, they'll know the first thing is I always look like I'm busy, which I generally am. Um, and it, does, it doesn't always look organized, but things get done. And I think one of the secrets is, one of my secrets to success has always been making decisive decisions. So I will make a decision with whatever information I have to hand, and then I'll live by that decision. If I have to defend it, if I'll defend it. If it, just, if it works, it works. But I don't dilly-dally and I don't kind of fuss around. Um, and I'm really good at delegating. So I'll get I'll, if something lands on my plate that's not for me, I'll get rid of it pretty quick. So that's kind of how I manage my schedule. A bit of delegation, a bit of decision-making, and, and lots of energy. I'm curious, Ron, why, why digitization? Why all this? What, what is it that drives you towards that movement? 
I don't think it, I, don't, I don't think it's a movement. I think it's I think it's a career opportunity to be different from everybody else. So, so so I, I I'm very proud. I'm a very proud engineer. I'm very proud of my civil engineering, instructional engineering background. What always kind of irks me if someone's oh here comes the BIM guy. It's like well hang on a second. I I'm I'm going to show you a couple of tricks that you don't fully understand as an engineer or as an architect. And and I very often get involved in projects that are quite complicated. Um, and I take great pride in understanding how those things are built, how those things get put together. So, so I come to the party with a very good knowledge of how things are built. Uh, when I'm not working on a computer, I love doing carpentry. So I, I'll make, okay. I'll make cabinets, I'll make furniture, cool. I'll, I'll build stuff. I'll, I'll see something on YouTube going, oh, that's really cool, and, and I'll build it. And my ambition is to build my own yacht. So my, my, my wife thinks it's absolutely hilarious, but my plan is to actually eventually build my own boat. So, so I've got I've got a pretty good skill set when it comes to carpentry. So there's a practical side to me, but the digitization is basically the only way forward. So anybody who's not understanding how digital tools are going to be used for building design, building construction, architectural design, they're living in the dark ages and they're going to be out of a job within within a lifetime. But but there's no other way forward. I hope there's a digital twin for your yacht already. <laughs> 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 Brings us yeah, to, there's, a, there's a there's a few there's a few there's a few digital models floating around. Yeah, but I haven't committed to I haven't committed to one yet. <laughs> this brings us to the 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 way the whole thing started, the conversation that started the the whole the whole thing, which was a post about the metaverse uh, you made on LinkedIn, and that that was a, a very interesting take. Do, can, can you talk a little bit about that? It was probably me slamming the metaverse. That's probably yeah, what it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so one of the things that irks me is that people will latch on to the latest trends without having dealt with the basics in the first place. I, I struggle to get architects and engineers to sit around and look at a, a model of a building that they've designed. So so very often we find an architect swanning around going, oh, I've designed this fantastic building. But then when you show them the actual model that they've produced or that their team has produced, and you start to see things that don't add up and levels that don't work and everything else, they, they don't get the basics right. So, so how they can all start suddenly swanning around that they're going to create things to put in the metaverse and, and all this nonsense that goes on around the metaverse. It's all, it's all hype. I, if, if, I, if I was living in an environment where we had fully detailed, fully buildable, fully coordinated designs coming out of our design consultants and everything else, then yeah, I'd spend my time looking at the metaverse because that'd be really cool. Mm. But the reality of it is that we can't get the basics done right. So in the absence of doing the basics right, everybody goes off looking for the next big, bright, shiny light, which currently is the metaverse. And in, in two years' time, it'll be something else. And in two years' time, it'll be something else. A couple of years ago, there was a whole conversation about how Bitcoin was going to change the entire construction sector. Yeah. And and mm -hmm. I laughed at that. And I'm still laughing. I've bought Bitcoin. I've, still, I've, I'm, I've lost a shitload of money in the last two <laughs> weeks. But, <laughs> but Bitcoin's gone off a cliff. But but it's again, it's it, I, I bought Bitcoin to figure out what the hell was going on, not because I thought it was a brilliant investment. And when I say I lost a lot of money, I, I've probably bought top end a thousand US dollars worth of Bitcoin. So I'm not exactly about to lose my my pension fund. But <laughs> but it's the same thing. People, I'm, I, I'm not I'm not about to start buying into the metaverse either. So I think people need to take a step back and going, is this is this just noise? I think I think certain again there'll be certain players like I know Dubai is going all in on on the metaverse, which will be interesting. They're they're an ecosystem, a, a, a micro ecosystem that can probably pull that off. But the rest of us that live in the real world, it's it, it's a long way away. Do you think Do you think it can create? You know, talking about Dubai, for example, we've seen a few announcements from MR accepting payments in certain cryptocurrencies, the metaverse projects, and so on. Do you think this kind of trend? And many owners getting on board on this trend can create some sort of downward pre downward pressure on construction, 
and they might be asking for more BIM, more digitization and so on. Is that something that could potentially fuel the transformation? Uh, no, I don't think it's going to come. I don't think it's going to come from that quarter. I don't think so either, honestly. A couple of years ago, people said BIM is here to stay. It's BIM, if you will, or in a broader sense, the, the adoption of digital solutions and construction is here to stay. But but there's a number of things have to catch up, right? So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if you if you work in any project, even our projects, which are heavily influenced by digital delivery solutions and digital delivery protocols, at the end of the day, the drawings that are stamped and signed in the corner are still the currency that's going to be argued about when it comes to illegal, if there's any legal issues or legal claims. So, yeah. so our legal agreements, our legal contracts are still based on technology that's hundreds of years old. And, and it's, we're still a long, long way away from an environment where people will actually use models as a basis for, contra- for contra- contracts because there's still lots to be learned about how you actually set them up, how you secure them, how you sign them off, how do you know what version you got, what, how do you know what's changed between one mm-hmm. version to the other. There's just not enough knowledge in the space. So, so anything that's far, a bit more far-fetched than a 3D model, it's a long, long way away. And, and like even simple things like cross-border financing, we're working in Saudi Arabia, and we're we're wanting to bring in and attract contractors from foreign foreign shores. They have to understand the rules and laws of working in Saudi Arabia. They have to understand the rules and laws of registration of companies, what bonds have to be set up, what bank accounts have to be set up. All of those are very traditional businesses. And and yes, the banks are probably some of the more advanced when it comes to digital solutions. But they're still very well established, very slow to change government systems, government policies, government rules. Mm-hmm. That people have to comply with, and and very often, that's what undermines all these digital solutions. So, so a simple example in Malaysia when we worked on the metro, we we had a BIM solution for twelve underground stations, and at the in in order for us to get paid as a consulting engineer, we had to print out every single drawing, and it had to be wet signatured for government approval. They would not accept a digital file. We had to print out everything, and someone had to physically sign every piece of paper and then send that to the government to get that stamped. And then that had to be sent back to us and then scanned and then put back onto the digital system. Oof. And there was no way around that. There was no way of changing that because that's the law in the country that you had to have a wet signature, literally an ink signature, on the on the documentation to get building a permit approval. So it doesn't matter how fancy your metaverse is, it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin you're using to pay for it, if you still have to print something out and use black ink on it, then that's where the industry's at. And and I think that's that's people need to bear that in mind. There is something, I have to admit, there is something exciting to me about the ability to live and experience a city, a space before you, virtually before you experience it physically. And there is also something exciting when it comes to the payments in that sector, being able to own I don't know, an eighteenth of an apartment or being able to, you know, own That's because you can't afford any more than an eighteenth of an apartment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. Right. So there is some exciting promise around the metaverse, but I'm 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 right there with you in that there is a lot of work that needs to happen in construction before we before we start having those conversations, anything beyond theoretical, before we start yeah. talking about them in a practical manner. What's the biggest change if if I were to ask you how do you think construction is going to be different in 10 years than it is today? What would you say? I think that you're going to see, we're seeing glimmers of it already. So you're going to see a lot more offsite manufacturing and a lot more prefabrication in certain sectors. And again, it won't be for every sector. You've got to remember the construction industry is vast. So when people talk about the construction industry, 
there's a very different group of contractors building schools than build luxury hotels. Yeah. And there's a very different group of contractors that build oil refineries than who build hospitals. So so you're not you can't just look at the, the all the different sectors and go, this is what's going to happen. So if you start looking at individual sectors, say public housing or our general housing sectors, there's huge opportunity in there for precasting, offsite manufacturing. When you look at our environment where we're building luxury accommodation, we're we're pushing a lot of offsite manufacturing. So we're trying to de- deliver pods for entire units. So some of the some of the units we're building for the Red Sea, we're actually building the entire unit um, offsite fully furnished, fully finished, and then delivering the entire room, not just a bathroom, but the entire suite to the site as an off-site unit. So you will see, you will start to see a lot more decentralization of certain factors of the industry. And and we've seen that already. There's a lot of, there's companies in Europe making pods that are sent out to New York to build buildings in New York because it's a more effective way of building buildings in New York, right? People are starting with mass timber construction. So so I think the biggest change we're going to see is going to be a lot more industrialization, a lot more manufacturing-centric. And that's going to be driven by, certainly by some of the tools that we use day in, day out, much better modeling, much better coordination, much better supply chain management. You're going to see those kind of tools coming to bear. I think that's where you're going to see certain sectors making big changes. Because whether we like it or not, we've, we're, we're the access to labor is diminishing. The access to skilled labor is getting harder and harder. I think as an industry, we, we, we've continuously failed to keep bringing in trades. So there's a complete lack of skilled carpenters, skilled electricians, even skilled general labor. There's a complete lack of, of skills in the, in, in the development side. So anything we can do to solve that productivity problem, is it's going to be in factories and in controlled environments. So I think that's the biggest change you're going to see. Ronan, do you see that happening by having a network of factories around the world? Or do you feel it's going to be much more centralized, i.e. there's going to be big manufacturing centers in China, India, I don't know, Saudi Arabia? No, I still think it's going to be national. I think it's still going to be at national level. You're going to, you're going to see people building factories at a national level to yeah. support national industry. The construction industry, construction industry is still driven by cost. So so unless you, unless you, unless IKEA start getting into something like building buildings, uh, the IKEA model is fascinating because they can they can centralize the manufacturing and shipping, yeah. right? But now IKEA is coming unstuck because of cost of shipping, cost of materials, availability materials. Like their business model is really struggling, right? Yeah. So so that's a really it's a really counter a good counter example where they've got a small number of huge manufacturing facilities and a vast shipping and storage facilities. So, like every IKEA store that we know, the big blue boxes, they're effectively a warehouse with a retail front to the at the the front end. Mm. So their their warehousing and their retail is 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 merged or managed together. So, I think to answer your question, I think you'll see national level um, supply, but I, I I find it hard to believe that a, a a unit that was manufactured in say Europe would be installed in China or vice versa because there's too much shipping cost involved, there's too much logistics involved, and you don't want to ship fresh air. So if, you, if you're going to start doing it, you're going to have to start doing flat packing. So so it becomes effective if you start moving dense packaging, but it, it's less effective if you start shipping fresh air around. It's, it's not quite as effective. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the airline industry with the big bets, right? The A380 and the hub and spoke system versus the direct flight, you know, shorter planes. And, yeah. I, and I feel, you know, looking at that, the, the direct flights one versus... You know the the big hub and spoke system. Well, they've, um, they've kind of proved that out now. The big A three eighty program just didn't plan out the way they thought it was, and and they're all going back to one hundred and what two hundred and fifty three hundred seater planes, high yeah. frequency. So, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be really interesting to see what's happening, how the construction industry will change. I do see the changer you're talking about. That's my personal feeling as well. We'll see if we are, if we are right. Let's <laughs> we'll see, see if we're, we're right wrong. or wrong. Let's see <laughs> we're wrong. What's the um, what's the alternative? Is it that we're just going to stay the way we are, or is it is it going to be something else that we haven't thought about? Well, well, we've stayed the way we are for the twenty five years I've been in industry. So, so, so the industry is is no better or no worse than it was twenty five years ago. So, like the the technologies have got maybe a bit faster. The technologies have changed in some ways. So, when I started off my career, I came out in nineteen ninety six, right? So. The first time I did a 3D model, I was putting X, Y, and Z coordinates into a, a Unix station in Arab's office in Dublin, and I had to sit down with a pen and paper and figure out, I was trying to work out a complicated truss. So I had to work out every node, every X, Y, and Z, I had to number all the nodes, and I had to connect the nodes to create a member frame, and then I had to work out what those member properties were, and then I could run the analysis, right? now. That process is still the same. You, if you watch engineers today, they're still making those kind of meshes, they're just doing it quicker, right? The data was stored on a, on a server in that building. More often than not, now the data is stored on an Amazon server or a Google server or whatever. So the data has got out of the building, but you're still, start, you're still dealing with data on a, on a server, right? So, so the, the principles haven't changed. The speed of them have changed. But our industry still has to fix a number of, of underlying concerns, one, one being how we share information and how we exchange information. That still hasn't been fixed. We we still have architects unwilling to share certain information with the with the contractors. We still have contractors who have no faith or confidence in the information they're getting, so they go off and build their own information. Yeah, and we still struggle to get certain data and everything else. So so there's a, a communication challenge in our industry um, that has not gone away and is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, and I think the biggest challenge we face is one, is one of skills and skills development. So so you, you and I, whether, whether we're sitting here in 20 years' time talking about BIM or the metaverse or Bitcoin or whatever else, we'll still be here in 20 years' time talking about stuff because we'll still be necessary in the industry. I, I have no fear of being out of work in the next 20 years. Um, and I have no fear of the industry suddenly becoming the far, far most advanced digitally, digitally aimed industry in the world. We've got a long ways to go. What is, what is a common mistake you see construction tech startups doing? You know, meaning the last five, seven years, there's been hundreds of them popping up and you're speaking to many of them. What is something that you see as a common mistake? I don't think it's, I don't think it's unique to a construction technology startup. I think every startup faces the same problems, the same challenges. So w- when I was running my business, the biggest issue was always cash flow. So if you don't have a product that people are willing to pay for or a service that people are willing to pay for, and you're borrowing money to keep your dream of your company alive, you have a serious problem because you're going to run, you're going to run out of cash sooner or later. Either the banks are going to basically call a halt or the investors are going to call a halt. So, so the first thing you got to do is make sure you've got something that people are willing to pay for. And if you have a product that people are willing to buy and are, are repeat customers, then, then you're onto something. And and then you have to figure out your your growth strategy. And there's different growth strategies. And some people go speed to market. Some people go scaling up with existing customers. And and I've never built a software solution. So the one thing people don't realize is that I've never actually written a piece of software in my life. I don't have a clue how to write code. So I run an engineering-based company. I know how to run an engineering consultancy. I know how to run a, a software as a service company. If you're getting consultancy fees you've got to figure out how to get bums in seats, how to charge those people and how to make money doing it. And and that's that's your business model. But the biggest mistake most companies make, whether it's a digital construction technology startup or a new restaurant on the corner, is cash flow. And if you're not keeping an eye on your cash, you're, you're going to run into bother pretty quick. 
I, I feel I feel like cash flow is a pretty big problem in in construction tech, right? Because it's a it's a yes, it's a huge industry, but it's an industry that has low profit margins from contractors, and uh, naturally the R and D budget is pretty low. It's very rare to see a construction company spending anything close to even a billion in in R and D. How do you solve that problem? I don't. I don't think you solve that problem. I think you'd be very cautious about watching what Procore are doing because the biggest challenge in our industry is you've got effectively what they call. I don't think whales is the right term, but it it it's very very difficult to crack into our industry unless you're at a certain scale. So so you look at the big guns like the the Autodesks, the Bentleys, the Procores, the Oracles. They they they're they're of a scale that they can actually deal with the industry as a whole, but any any small company to to get a foothold in the industry, you've got to get twenty five, thirty, fifty, a hundred companies using your product before anybody takes you seriously, and and to get in there and sell to all those companies is actually really really challenging. So so the companies that figure out how to get into as many businesses as possible are the ones that scale up and, and grow grow quickly. But generally speaking, the construction industry, whether it's the engineering firms, the architectural firms, the main construction firms or the subcontracting specialist firms, they don't necessarily have an R&D budget, but they do have a budget for solving problems. So some of those some of those businesses are really clever at investing in, and developing and coming up with new ideas because they know they can't stand still. But a lot of those companies are just doing the same thing day in, day out. And, and they know what it takes to run the company and, and they get on and do it. Um, and it's only when... They're told they have to go and invest in a BIM process or they have to buy a CDE or they have to use a certain platform. They'll go out and procure it and they'll, they'll mark it up and they'll use it. And then the next job, they won't bother using it because they didn't see the value in it. So so there's, there, there, isn't a, there isn't a research and development ethos in our industry. Our industry goes from one job to the next job to the next job and they try and eke out a profit on every single one. Um, and if they're lucky, they'll they'll make money on a job. But the, the, there's no there's no loyalty in our business. There's no returning customers. So you can win a contract today from one client and never work for the guy ever again. So 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 why would you invest in in anything if you if you have no consistency or no no reliability going forward? Why do you think that is? So you said you said they 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 buy and use the software. Let's say if the Red Sea says we want you all to use you know, whatever, and you have ten contractors there, all ten are using it. Why do you mm-hmm. not see them seeing the value in it? Because they they haven't invested in it themselves. They've been they've basically purchased something, passed on the cost to the, the whoever specified it. They've used it for that purpose, and then they've gone on and done the next thing. By the time they move on to the next job, if if it's not required, they're not going to offer it because they know it's going to cost money, and then they won't win the work because their bid will be higher than the other guy's bid. Mm. So 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 they, every everything comes back down to specifications, bid pricing, and lowest cost tendering. Yeah. And for for as long as we remain in that market where you have to be the lowest tenderer to win a project, no one's going to put any skin in the game to around investment, around development, around upskilling because they can't recover those costs. So so it, when you see what happens in like a UK environment where the UK government says right, all future government projects are going to be this, this, and this, you can yeah. move the needle. But but unless you've got that kind of mandate, it's very very hard. So 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 again, most contractors they will look at a project and go, okay, well if we want to if we want to work on this, and it's not true for all contractors, right? Again, there's there's always going to be exceptions to the rules. So sure. there are standout contractors in all the markets that you look at that continually invest in in technology, continue to invest in people, and they're the ones everyone wants to go work for. So if you're in the U.S., I can name on one hand some of the top contractors in the U.S., and they're the guys who continually invest in technology. They continue to invest in things. 
But then when you look at the projects, they're not hard bidding for work. They're negotiating work for some of the biggest enterprises in the world. So they don't work in the same they don't work in the same sandpit as everybody else. So so you've got to take a, a view of what 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 sectors are these guys working in, what clients have they got, and how are they how are they being able to carve up money to invest into Procore or Autodesk or anything else? There isn't a singular construction market. There's very different construction markets inside of one big ecosystem. Mm, I see that. I see that. Do you ever see us moving away from the lowest bidder mentality? Again, there's going to be examples of that. So you're going to you're going to find certain certain owners who understand that that's not the right way to procure a building, and and it's not going to get them building they want they want in the time frame they want. Yeah. But most owners who are looking for what they think is the best deal will 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 continue down that road because they they think they're buying the best product that they can. And most owners have been led to believe they can manage that risk and they can manage that process to control those costs. And and that's the the way it's always been done. So I don't see us ever moving away from it. I think there's always going to be a contingent who we're going to just keep pushing for the lowest price because that's how they, that's how their business model is set up. What if it's a lowest bidder, but you need to give me some transparency? Fine, I'll give it. If you're the lowest bidder, you think that they take it. But you can't have both. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> you know that as well as I do. <laughs> Transparency costs money. Yeah, yeah. There you go, uh, Ronan. Thank you so much for uh, thank you so much for for coming to the podcast. We're we're so excited to, to talk to you. It was such a fun conversation. Learned a lot throughout the process. I always love hearing your story. Uh, I feel there's. There's there's something new every time. It's kind of like walking through Manhattan. You know, every time there's something new. There's some place. <laughs> even if you live there for like thirty years. Or Dublin. Yeah. There's so you want do you want to hear do you want to hear a funny story about walking through Manhattan? Yes. Just because just you brought it yes. up. So I was I was in New York. Oh, well, it must be seven, six seven years ago. Yeah. I, I was actually longer. I, and I was over in New York. I was competing in a sailing regatta. So I, so I was living in Hong Kong. And I went over to New York to compete in a sailing regatta. And after the regatta, I went I went into New York City to meet my father-in-law. So my my wife's dad lives in New York. And I was moving from his place to one of the metro stations. And I was just walking down through Manhattan. And by pure chance, I bumped into one of the shareholders of my company out of Canada, who just happened to be in Manhattan for, for a long weekend, just chilling out. And I'm like going, how big is this this city? And we had no plans to meet. There was no reason for us to catch up, nothing to discuss. And literally, we're literally walking in opposite directions down the pavements in some random street in Manhattan. We bump into each other. So, so it's like such this a, world is just way too small. Such it could have been five world. minutes later, five minutes earlier or later on each and others are one block in one direction. We never met each other, but we actually bumped into each other in the, in the middle yeah. of Manhattan. Absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. It, it is. It's, su it's such a small world, and it's um, it's always fun to to experience these things. And ultimately, these are, are stories that we live to tell. And I think there are stories that perhaps help us realize that you know we're not the center of the world, and and that that you know we have an opportunity here to to do something great. <laughs>